Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. My name is Andrew Sola. very happy to announce a brand new series on our podcast, Novel Romantics, our podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm also delighted to introduce our host of Novel Romantics, author and professor Douglas Cowie. Doug is originally from Chicago, Hamburg's sister city. Since 1999, he has lived in both England and Germany. He is the author of novels and novellas, including Owen Noon and the Marauder, Noon in Paris, Eight in Chicago, Sing for Life, Tin Pan Alley, and Sing for Life, Away You Rolling River. He is senior lecturer in the English department at Royal Holloway, University of London, where he teaches American literature and creative writing. In our first episode, we honor African-American History Month. Dr. Cowie and his guest, Dr. Ali Bilas, discuss two crime novels by African-American author Attica Locke. The first is called Bluebird, Bluebird, and the second is called Heaven, My Home. If you haven't read the novels yet, don't worry, there are no spoilers. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Novel Romantics podcast. I am indeed the host, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher, and my guest today is Dr. Ali Bilas. Ali Bilas is Senior Lecturer in Education at University of Bedfordshire, with teaching and research interests in literature and philosophy. He's published academic and journalistic work on, among other things, crime fiction, which we'll be talking about today. Um, he also spends a lot of time listening to and thinking about jazz. And most excitingly for me, he's a, also a competitive strongman. He can lift <laughs> boulders onto um, platforms things. and things like that. Uh, so welcome, Ali, and thanks for joining me on Novel Romantics. <laughs> thanks very much for the intro. You're very welcome. I, I felt like I, it was important to me to mention your competitive strongman pursuits. Today we're going to talk about two novels by the Los Angeles-based writer Attica Locke, uh, Bluebird, Bluebird, and its sequel, Heaven, My Home. The novels both center on the character of Texas Ranger Darren Matthews and his investigation into crimes, um, murders and kidnappings mostly, um, that may or may not have connections to a white supremacist organization called the Aryan Brotherhood. Uh, before we get into the details of the novels themselves, I want to ask you, Ollie, about the crime fiction genre in general, since you've studied and written about the genre quite a bit. Um, and so I just want to ask, what are some of the important features of the genre as far as you're concerned? And what is it about this the crime genre that interests you, uh, generally speaking? Sure. Yeah. And there's a there's a there's an answer to that that's uh, that's very long winded and goes around the houses and it becomes a sort of it becomes something to do with my interest in my my broader interest in genre per se, not just crime writing as a genre. The shorter answer, which uh, you and listeners will probably thank me for, it's provided by Attica Locke in one of her interviews, and I thought she answered this question really, really well. And one of the things that crime fiction does is it it allows readers and writers to to think about the sort of the, the way that 
issues of structural, systemic power relations um, and, and individual agency overlapped, intersect, block each other. That's a short answer, I think. Okay, what is it, what are the features of crime fiction that allow for that to happen from from your point of view? Like I can think of a few, but I'd like to hear from you a little bit first before I start interrupting you. Okay, I mean, well, I'd 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 invite you to interrupt me because this is again, this is one of those things that I actually find it sort of sounds like a simple enough question, right? Yeah. But when we talk about, you know, the features of crime fiction, that's when things like, you know, our expectations of particular genre come into play, and that's when something like formula fiction overlaps with uh, and, and by I mean, formula fiction that's not a sort of particularly tricky term i mean you know things that just you know it's almost like join the dots type writing okay and there's plenty of that out there so like a, um, what you mean is like fiction that has to have certain ways of doing things like the plot must for, follow this line of doing things or a character must behave in this kind of way because that's what we expect and and it's important for the the formula to fulfill our expectations is that what you mean yeah, exactly. Exactly, and and you see that in sort of late nineteenth and early twentieth century penny dreadfuls and, and and dime novel writing and the pulps, right? And that's partly, yeah, as you say, it's partly to sort of fulfil certain expectations, certain plot demands. Perhaps it's also, you know, to sell copy, right? Because 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 yeah. what what we've come to know, and there's no getting away from this, what we've what we've come to call crime fiction, which let's face it, that is that's a really really broad term. You know, there's there's yeah. there's lots of there's lots of individual texts that we could point to and say, well, you know, that's kind of crime fiction. But at the same it? time, but at the same time, like the book, I'm literally looking at it right now, um, says, "Crime Writers Association steal dagger winner." You know, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's sure. not just it's not just some outside imposed thing. It's a thing that that writers themselves embrace or that the industry itself embraces. But I guess like the obvious thing to say is that like a cr- crime fiction has a crime. But also, like, there's when it comes to formula, and we can talk a little bit about what formula does or what it doesn't do. And I don't mean formula as necessarily a pejorative term, right? Yeah. But like, let's for for the sake of argument, say like, oh, crime fiction usually involves like, you know, a hard-boiled detective or something, or there's there's a damsel in distress. Th- this, these novels don't necessarily have those things, but but like, there's these expectations that we have going in that we expect to be fulfilled as a reader. Yeah, yeah. But e- and even then, I mean, and you've, you've said it in that, in, in the way you framed that part of the discussion, that question, but you've, even then you've kind of framed a particular subgenre of crime writing, right? yeah, like the, hard, yeah. the hard-boiled tradition as opposed to the, to the classic mystery. Do you, you know what I mean? So, it's, yeah. so can these I things tell are you, relatively fine-grained. So one of the things that's interesting about, about us discussing this is that you started out saying like, oh, I'm interested in genre in, in general as a thing of, you know, and not necessarily crime as a genre, but genre and how does drum, genre work? Which is always interesting to me because I've never been interested in thinking about literature in terms of its genre. And I mean, I, I know lots of people who are, and and I can see the value of doing so and everything, but it just for me, both, I suppose, as a reader and as a writer, genre is just something that that has never interested me and sometimes to be frank baffles me and i think we're going to end up talking about this when we we turn to talking about the books a little bit more specifically and maybe now is the time to start doing that even like that just it's not like the idea of writing to conform to particular ways of doing things or particular expectations of doing things or or that i go and approach reading because oh this this book is going to 
solve a crime in a particular way, or there's going to, or this is a romance novel, and they're all going to live happily ever after at the end, and that's what I want. Isn't something I really think about. I don't, and it's hard to kind of talk about this, I think, without sounding like a jerk. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean it in that way. Like one of my friends and colleagues, who's a science fiction writer. Uh, and I joke about Adam Roberts. He and I joke about this all the time. I'm, you know, I always say, like, "Oh, would you, would you prefer this novel if it had a rocket ship in it?" <laughs> and, and he says, "Yeah." And you know, he always tries to convince me that what I'm writing is science fiction and that kind of thing. And it, but like, it, it does do something for people. And there is there are certain things to be said for conventions and and the way they work. And it's not like like as you said, everything is a genre and everything. Everything fits certain conventions, but sometimes I think those are those are enabling, and sometimes I think they get in the way. and I and I think that's true both for a reader, and the expectations that a reader might bring to a book because it's this is this genre, so it has to do these things, and if it doesn't, I'm going to get mad. But also for a writer, and I think this is something interesting with these Attica Locke novels, both of which I really really like, um, but where where I kind of get frustrated with at times when I see them kind of falling into those formulas you alluded to. And, and I want to talk about that, but I also want to say one thing that I think is interesting about crime fiction, and I, one thing that I think that Attica Locke in particular does super, super well with the genre, I suppose, of, of crime fiction, or one of some of the characteristics, is that it brings people who aren't from the same spheres or of society or the same worlds into each other's spheres, not necessarily into conflict with each other, although almost always into conflict with each other, because conflict is where story uh, arises for us. But it brings them together. It, it forces people who aren't alike or who wouldn't, whose daily lives, their paths wouldn't cross. It forces them to cross. Um, and it also, and I think another thing that she does really well, and she does both of these things in these novels, it also brings people whose daily lives do cross into new kinds of interaction with each other that reveal things. And I suppose all of this is a way of saying that crime fiction tends to be very plot-driven. So one of the things that I'm always teaching to my students is, a, is about the importance of plot versus character and how these things interact with one another. And without wishing to get too... Um, highbrow and stuff here, like Aristotle, who sets out in Poetics the kind of building blocks of how drama works, says that plot reveals character. It shows the nature of a decision. Um, I, I think crime fiction in general can do that extremely well because plot is so important and, and activities are so important in it. But also I think Attica Locke particularly exploits those moments where of, of people coming into conflict and, and what that shows about who they are or who they want to be or how they want to behave versus how they are behaving. And we might look at some examples of that as we get going in a little further into our discussion. But I don't know if you want to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in what you just said. What, one of the interesting things, I mean, I, I think you're right that there's, to say that crime fiction tends to be very plot driven or, or plot dependent, I think that is a that's a kind of commonplace or an expectation, right? That's something that we map to the genre and just, and the, you know, I'm just saying this as a, as a hopefully an interesting response. Dennis Lehane, you know, a well-respected crime writer and writer. I listened to an interview 
with him fairly recently i listened to it recently it's not a particularly recent interview but you know he said that you know yeah i'm sure i'm a crime writer and the thing i'm least interested in is plot um but what he is interested in is character um and and i don't have an awful lot to say about that because you know i'd I'd, we'd need dennis lahane here to unpick that but it's really interesting I i think to have someone who in many ways is, is at the forefront of crime writing at the moment saying the thing that he's least interested in is is plot or what most of us think of as plot i don't i mean i don't do know you believe him to that. i do do you believe him because i like i always i'm always saying like you, know, you should never trust what a writer says in an interview because because <laughs> they tend to you know say what sounds good in the moment or what yeah they, what will make them sound good or they're also they're just trying to I, I don't mean that writers are dishonest no no I, I know but what you like, mean I, but, but it's like, a thing that you're always just trying to moment. yeah and you're always just trying to navigate a discussion about something that sure. you've, you've thought about in very different ways to um, yeah I mean so what an interview so, asks you to think about no I really I really like that as a question do you believe him because actually so I would say I don't believe the Dennis Lehane who wrote who wrote his first novel A Drink Before the War which seems to me really, really plot-driven and in, in places quite quite baggy, quite unnecessarily baggy. And if I remember to come back to it... What do you mean by baggy? Uh, that you could have trimmed that novel down by 50, maybe 100 pages. And it would have been just as good. Because there's just too much action. Yeah, too much action. And, um, and also, I want to park this for a moment, I'll come back to it, but there's something, to, something that I'd, I'd like to, to ask you about, actually, to do with style. Okay. So come back to that in a moment. But yeah, the the, the plot does get unnecessarily baggy. Um, there's also something to do with the writing that, yeah, as I say, I'll come, I'll come back to in a sec. So that's his first novel. Came out in the mid-90s, I think. Definitely in the 90s. I'm just, so 94-ish, 95, something like that. And he also, he also wrote a short story called Animal Rescue, which became the script for the film The Drop. Uh, you know, do you know the film I'm talking about? No. Okay, so this is the last film that uh, that James Gandolfini ever made. It's so oh, he right, and okay. Tom Hardy are in, are in the lead roles, uh, and that story itself has a kind of quick footnote has an interesting kind of history because uh, Lehane wrote the uh, he wrote the short story Animal Rescue. He then turned his own short story into a script, which became the drop. He then turned the script, the drop, into the novel, the drop. Anyway, there's. 10, 12 years between those two. Uh, and the point I'm making to respond to your question is I don't believe the Dennis Lehane who wrote A Drink Before the War that he's uninterested in plot. I do believe the Dennis Lehane who wrote the short story Animal Rescue. And it's a, and it's a much more sophisticated piece of writing, a much more satisfying piece of writing, I'd say. And a lot less plot driven. But you know, so you don't think you don't think in. that later writer is, inter- is as interested as in plot. Sorry, you don't think the the later writer is as interested in plot as the younger writer was? No, exactly. And then we could get into all sorts of fairly pointless speculations about well, to what extent was he? Is that first novel? Is it him? Sort of almost second guessing the the conventions of the genre. Do you know what I mean? Like trying to work out what do I need to do, or to what extent is it is it editorial advice? You know, I don't know. Yeah, or also how to write because like every yeah, writer, exactly. every writer with everything that they write is just trying to work out how yeah. to write. Yeah, yeah. No matter how experienced or inexperienced they are, because because yeah. you every story that you want to tell that you have an idea that you want to tell starts to put different pressures on you. And you have to try and figure out like 
I think this is this is comes back maybe to what we were saying earlier about formulas. It's like you want to lean into formulas maybe because they're comfortable yeah. and they're easier at times. But depending on your ambition for what you want to do, and I don't mean ambition to like make money or whatever, like just your artistic ambition for for anything you write, um, those formulas might not work for you anymore, or yeah. you, you have to figure out all over again. Well, how is this story served by writing in this way or approaching in this way? I don't want to get too hung up on maybe yakking about plot all the time, but it's one of the things that's... I've always considered myself a writer who... who not that I'm not interested in plot. I'm just not very good at it. Like, I always think... I always think, man, plot, like... You know, it's hard to kind of make a story that's exciting um, or goes places, um, partly because if you know the end of... You know, if, if you're the one writing it, you already know how it works. <laughs> you know, there's, no, there's no surprises to be had. And so reading something like... Bluebird, Bluebird was particularly exciting to me because of how great the plot is and how how just clearly well constructed it is. I mean, and this is a writer who also writes for for the screen for TV, and screenwriting. Yeah, yeah. And screenwriting is always about plot. Like, yeah, you know, it's a very different medium to writing for the page and. And it's it's visual and it's story driven more than anything else, and and you can see the all the good of that in in Bluebird Bluebird, and in Heaven My Home. Though in Heaven My Home, I think the plot. So it's interesting to read these two novels together, um, Bluebird Bluebird, the first one, and then the sequel, Heaven My Home, because the plot doesn't seem as tight to me in Heaven My Home. In fact, and we might come back to this. Like I just yeah. think Heaven My Home should have been shorter and part of it should have been one long novel with a little bit less plot in the second one and and it would have all kind of fit together because i think she's such a brilliant plotter and it's so exciting to me to read something like that and to think about it and to learn from it because you just see someone slotting things into place and some of those plot moments are surprising as you read them some of them aren't surprising you, you see the way the story is going and that's kind of one of the interesting things about reading a novel that's about solving a crime is like you expect the crime to be solved at the end or if it's not going to be solved you expect to understand why it hasn't been solved my my experience of crime fiction is mostly um reading the magre novels of um george simenon right and like and those you know magre solves the crimes i think there's one that he doesn't solve and he and it's i think that's the one called magre gets angry <laughs> he's angry because he can't solve the crime um uh, <laughs> I might be wrong about that. I can't remember, but because I've read so many of them, and they, I slightly forget which ones are which. But, but you, you know, you expect if the if the detective isn't going to solve the crime at the end, you expect to know why or how the detective couldn't solve the crime. Yeah, and and so part of that reading experience is that some of some of the things you see coming and some of the things you don't see coming, and and the real skill or part of the real skill of the writer is guiding you through that and making you feel surprised at times and making you understand and, and not be surprised but still be excited about what you're reading as you go. And I think she does that really, really well. And there's there's moves that she does and doesn't make because like every plot move is a decision, right? It doesn't have to inevitably be that this guy was the murderer or whatever or that this guy was the bad guy and this guy was the good guy but the good guy did a murder or whatever it might be it yeah. doesn't have to be that way the, the author can make a different decision and and she sometimes you see her um making 
decisions that are less obvious, and, and those are very interesting to me. So before we get too far into um, my vague ramblings about plot, maybe it would be a good time to, to, <laughs> to summarize say the plot. What the, what's, the, yeah, what's the plot? So I don't know, Ali, do you want to talk through um, Bluebird, Bluebird, or we can take them both as they're, 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 these two novels. So Bluebird, Bluebird is the first one. Yeah. Having My Home is the second. They're really, they're uh, uh, partners. The, the, Having My Home picks up literally in the same moment where Bluebird, Bluebird left off and continues the same story with some new twists and directions. So the central character, the protagonist is Darren Matthews, Texas Ranger, um, and, and is important to these to these books. Uh, it's important that he's black, right? African-American, Texas Ranger. And in Bluebird, Bluebird, he, um, he's, well, he's actually on suspension, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, at, the very, at the very beginning. And... Oh, how do we do this without giving away too many crucial spoilers? Uh, for various reasons, he he insinuates himself in a in a double murder case in a nearish by town called Lark, um, and he's about to get his ass handed to him for for doing this uh, off the books. But then he actually starts to turn up some interesting possible leads on a white supremacist group called the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. So you know he's he's allowed to to carry on his investigation. Um, how much more of this one should we give away, Doug? So I'll give away a little bit more. I think without, I mean, we're not going to ruin the novel for anyone. Yeah. Um, there's been a murder in this small town. Uh, the guy who was murdered wasn't from the town. So the, these are, one of the things that's interesting about these novels as well is the setting. It's in East Texas, in small town East Texas. There's this guy who's passing through the town. No one's quite sure why he's been murdered. It's not clear why he's been murdered. This Texas Ranger who's been suspended for punching somebody gets involved in the investigation, but the investigation also ends up involving the local police. And and he's quite a complicated character because he's from this area. He's got family in this area, and some of his family is prominent. One of his uncles is a former Texas Ranger. One is a, is a law professor. Um, he's moved away and come back, and he's got all kinds of different conflicts of being an insider and a, and semi-outsider, and 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 his own sense of identity and how it's drawn up in being um, a black man from East Texas in this racially complex, I think, world. Which is one of the, it brings me back to what I said about about what's so interesting about what crime fiction can do is that it it gives a really interesting filter or lens through which to understand those racial complexities or interracial complexities yeah and that's Uh, and that's clearly clearly part of her project but i reckon we're going to end up talking a lot about that so let's do the other let's do the part two oh yeah so bluebird bluebird is is, so it's a little bit trickier to talk about bluebird bluebird without giving away what happens at the end of um or sorry, it's 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 complicated to talk about Heaven My Home without giving away what happens at the end of Bluebird Bluebird, but to to try and do so without ruining the book for everyone, because um, you might want to listen to this. Maybe you're listening to this podcast before you read the book, or maybe you've already read it. But there's a certain amount of the story, although the crime itself gets solved, the murder itself gets solved in Bluebird Bluebird, yeah, in really interesting ways. Um, 
there's still some lingering threads to that story that are unresolved because of these complicated interactions of place the different groups with their different power claims and needs and because of Darren Matthews and his own personal stake in, in these things. And the second novel picks up with that untied thread, still untied, yeah. but, and this is where I'm, I'm not getting into spoiling anything, there's, there's a new wrinkle that there's been a, uh, a kid has disappeared in another nearby small town. In fact, a place so small that no one seems to even know it's on the map, yeah. which I kind of like as a um, you think about the things you do as a writer where you're trying to create a world that looks real, that is real, but is also made up and fictional. And, you know, there's this real place, East Texas. Um, there's places where you want to say that bad things are happening and you want to, you know, you want to call racists racists and things like that. But you, so you don't want to call actual people anything libelous. And so you, you create a town that even people who live nearby haven't heard of. <laughs> And I kind of like that. Um, but anyway, there's this this little... Uh, so I, I think he's like nine or ten-year-old... Um, yeah, he's a nine-year-old boy. White boy whose father is in prison because he was a leader of this white supremacist gang, this Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. He, he doesn't appear in the first novel. He's another member of this organization. Um, he's in prison. This This boy gets kidnapped and disappears. And... Um, the novel really becomes the story of trying to find this kid, find out if this kid has been murdered or is still alive, and it ends up unraveling a lot of history. It's very interested in history, Heaven My Home, in a way that Bluebird, Bluebird is less interested in history, I think. It's more interested in, in politics than history, and, and Heaven My Home kind of gets into the history and the politics of a place, the history that makes the politics of a place. Yeah. Um, and it's about unraveling that thing. And, and I wonder if now is a good time for me to just read out a little bit of that novel. Sure. One is where she does an interesting thing of basically sort of summarizing the plot and telling you what's at stake in the plot. And this doesn't really give anything away either. So you don't need to run away from your podcast device if you're listening and haven't read the book but um there's this great moment where, where darren matthews is sort of well he's 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 trying to convince his boss to let him stay on the case and this moment for me kind of gets to the heart of what's interesting so interesting about these novels in particular and i guess about maybe about crime fiction in general if we can extrapolate to that point but it says he told wilson wilson is his superior officer in the Texas Rangers. He told Wilson of Rosemary King's odd behavior. The attorney she had nearly attached to her hip from the time Darren had met her, which stopped all manner of questioning, including that involving Marion County's latest mystery. He told Wilson about Monica Maldonado, the noises in the room, the run-in with Gaines, the lies, the notary who couldn't find her, and the fact that she seemed to have completely disappeared. Wilson chuckled faintly at the end of it, as if he thought Darren were reaching for something else to do out there to avoid leaving town thought you said things were good at home <laughs> i think it's just so great like in just really simple summary of what's been going on in the novel she also if you've read up to that point gets right into the heart of all the different things that are at stake yeah. both in that in the kind of political world of this town uh, or this county marion county and at, in what's personally at stake 
right at the end with that stinger from his from Wilson thought you said things were good at home that he's having trouble with his marriage which is one of the plot things I don't think is so effective in these novels but also here is still at stake nonetheless yeah. and, you know one man's opinion isn't the value of the novel anyway it's just my view of it I just think that's such a great kind of simple writing that also reveals so much stuff just in the telling of plot and then the other thing and this is this is characters coming into conflict with each other and kind of the ways in which the uh, this is partly a function of genre as maybe gets to what i back to my opening question to you about like what's interesting about thinking about things in terms of genre and here the, what's interesting about thinking about these novels in terms of, of how genre works and, and what genre can really do for a writer or for a story, I suppose ultimately it's like, what does genre do for a story and how we learn something from that story um, is here where you have, okay, there's different levels to it. There's, there's a criminal in prison um, interacting with a law enforcement officer. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. It's also a white supremacist interacting with an african-american uh, there's also a, a very interesting power balance here because the white supremacist is also the victim of a crime his son has been kidnapped right at the beginning of the novel so i'm not giving anything away still so he's he's a criminal who's in prison uh, he's in prison for the whole novel he's for crimes that don't have anything to do with the directly with the plot of the novel um, but he's also the victim of a crime because his kid's been kidnapped and might be dead we don't know um, he's convinced he's not. Other people are convinced the kid is dead. It's, you know, um, that's one of the things that's interesting about how the story plays out, actually. You have a law enforcement officer who, therefore, kind of by the nature of his job, has power over this criminal white supremacist victim of crime. But also, the white supremacist has power over him in certain ways because he, needs, he wants something from him. He can give him information that he might want about the crime syndicate you know there's like there's all these different power relations yeah, yeah. all at stake and these two guys are sitting in a room talking and they both want a variety of different things for, for themselves and from one another and some of those things lie outside either of theirs control and so then there's this conversation with them um that uh Hold on, I've just turned to the wrong page. I was going to read something else. <laughs> While you're doing that, it's, it's possibly worth saying one of the things that Attica Locke has talked about um, in relation to Heaven, My Home, is is you know is her. This was written out of uh, her political anger, right? And, and yeah. one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why she uh, uses this situation of uh, kidnapped the kidnapped son of a possibly former white supremacist. Behind all this, she was asking herself, "Could she, I don't know if you've listened to these interviews, but her, the burning question in this book for her is, could she ever forgive people who voted for Trump? Yeah. You know, this, so this, I was gonna... this book is really kind of coming out of that kind of rightwards populist lurch that, that America's seen and, and, and her anger at that. And, it, and, it, and for her, this was, a, this was a book about the possibilities of political healing, but also personal forgiveness. Yeah. Which is why she plonks that Darren Matthews in this situation. Yeah, that, that feeds perfectly into what I, the passage I'm going to read out, actually. And, I, and something else that we can circle back to after I've read it, maybe, because I was going to talk about that Trump thing. It's, it's very interesting the way that she, with a very light touch, makes it very clear that this is about this moment of 
Trump has been elected and what's going to go on. Like, there's a lot of discussion between the law enforcement people about it's it's set between his election and inauguration. Yeah, and so and it's like, well, we can do this now while we know we can. There's still political will to do these kinds of because the FBI comes into it, and so it becomes a sort of federal issue. There's that political question of like we can still do this now because we're still in the Obama administration. And her first two novels, she's written two other novels, um, are set right at you know in the when Obama has been elected. So there's yeah. there's an interesting um, political thinking going on there and, and portrayal of the politics of or the lived politics of electoral politics, if that makes sense, or the lived yeah, and social it, and politics it, of electoral politics. Yeah, and it, and it should be said as well, shouldn't it, that this you know. Heaven My Home is so recently published that she would have been writing this. Uh, when you look at the, the the really quite small gap between Bluebird, Bluebird and Heaven My Home, she yeah. would have been writing this, gearing up for an election, but not knowing what, you know, but not knowing. Most people would have read this as or just after Joe Biden becoming president-elect, right? R- roughly, I guess, right? or, in the, or in the lead up at least. Um, so this would have been written as she was gearing up for this election, not knowing the outcome. Yeah. So let's get into the into how that works in in a story. And here's yeah, yeah. So this is this is um, Bill. The Bill King is the um, white supremacist being spoken to in prison by Darren, um, our Texas Ranger. And well, I'll read I'll read from uh, this part. He's talking about Bill's in prison because um, basically because he as the initiation ceremony for this um, white supremacist group they basically just have to go out and kill uh, an african-american and done so and he's been he's been caught for it again all that happens off the page so to speak or, or outside of the direct plot of this story it's, it's kind of the background to who who this guy is um, but it can't be bill darren said feeling a hot stone lodge in his throat so his voice came out hard and mean i help you find your son and who gives keisha and jared their daddy back how does that work you telling me your redemption matters more than theirs? You think that saving your white son, who, by the way, is probably a racist shit, like just like his dad, so you can clear the little fantasy that he's not out of your head now? You think that will make it all right for Keith's kids? Bill ran his grimy fingers through his closely cropped hair. The chains connected to his handcuffs rattled against the table. He seemed beat by this, undone by Darren's withholding of praise for his moral rebirth. He so badly wanted this black man to pat him on the back for what millions of people managed with ease, not hating every black person they saw. Bill pleaded for grace. I am laying my body on the line for my sins, man, every day, every day. Darren looked directly into Bill's watery eyes, and it still ain't enough. It's a, it's a great couple of paragraphs. There's so many, there's so much movement there in their conversation that it ends up in a place very different from where it starts. It goes through a couple of moves while it's happening that, you know, Darren gets to kind of ball this guy out and tell him exactly what he thinks. And, and the anger is all embodied in this character. So even if it's Attica Locke's anger, like you were just describing, she's really embodied it in this character. She then gives the the white supremacist his due and, and lets him, you know, this is a guy who's kind of, he's found God in prison and he's trying to, he to be the shepherd. He's, been yeah. he's trying to be the yeah. shepherd, as um, um, Samuel L. Jackson's character says in in Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. And he, and he's it, there's the, the question is always there is whether he's this is real or whether he's you know saying what he thinks he needs to say to get paroled. 
that question is left open in the novel. You have to kind of decide as a reader. You have to take a moral position on it, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, there's times in novels, and in, also in these novels specifically, where you're definitely kind of told where to land on the moral scale, right, as a reader. Like, you read and you, you know that the author wants you to sit here and side with these people over these people. And with this character, is there's something more ambiguous or um, there's something to be ambivalent about. Like, you don't necessarily have to decide that you side with Darren in this conversation. The conversation is is uncomfortable and difficult regardless of which side you decide to sit on or whether you decide not to sit on a side. And I think that's... So she said in one of the interviews that you've been alluding to, she says, it's the one that on the, the Los Angeles Review of Books from a few yeah. years ago, and she's talking about different novels than these two. Um, but she said in that interview that she always tries to give her characters their due. That um, uh, I wrote down the quotation. She says it's about not being cheap with people, good or bad. And I think that's a really... So I believe Attica Locke, to come back to my earlier, <laughs> she, is not, she is not cheap with her characters, ever. None of her characters are cheap, and none of them get treated cheaply, no matter how lousy they are, no matter how mean they are, no matter how good they are, they get shown and they get treated honestly, I suppose, or clear, clear-mindedly. Um, they're never entirely right. They're never entirely wrong. There's, um, there's play in there, and, and you see it. It's not just like, oh... Oh, which there is some of this in these novels of like, you know, the cop doing bad things or things he knows to be, I suppose, legally or procedurally questionable for the right yeah. reasons, which is always a part of these kinds of stories. It's part of what makes them interesting. Yeah, and there's yeah. some of that, but it's not just that. It's also just about like, and, and, and this character, Darren Matthews, is particularly good for these reasons, is that he's always kind of questioning his own motivation and things. You see it there, and in fact, the, the passage that I landed on earlier that was the wrong one, I, it's now become the right one. <laughs> um, um, he is talking to Wilson, his superior, again. He didn't think he'd ever heard those words from from Wilson. Wilson's just said, I back you 100%. He didn't think he'd ever heard those words from Wilson. And hell if it didn't cross his mind that to save a white child, he was being given carte blanche to go around to the locals here. That with this one, he had Wilson in his pocket. So there's power dynamics again on show there. A match head's flame of anger lit in his chest and extinguished itself just as quickly. Did he think the missing blonde boy lit a fire under Wilson? Yes. Did it mean the boy didn't still need his help? No. Could he possibly keep Leroy out of prison? Yes. And it's like, that that's not being cheap with your character. There's a guy admitting, kind of admitting to some of his own small-mindedness, admitting to some of the his maybe not small-mindedness maybe that's unfair to darren matthews admitting to some of his conflicts and and admitting to the power structure that he's in and the games that yeah. he has to play in order to achieve what he wants to achieve but and this this comes back to i mean the the, the atticolock interviews the ones that are the, that are available um are well worth listening i think i don't know what you think about them but she's i mean it's going to sound like a crass thing to say, you know. Oh, surprise, surprise! A writer talks well about her work, but 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 actually, she's she's got such a such a fine grain, such a, such a nuanced conception of what she's doing with her. I was about to say with the genre, but no, but just with with her books, with her Darren Matthews series, um, and it's and she's a really fascinating. 
a really compelling speaker and it comes back to that earlier point that that what she does with with matthews where these books you know really really are really really great really brilliant is where she does as you're saying articulates these kind of conflicts between between individual agency uh, and political power structures and those sorts of things right and that's where that's where she does that she she negotiates those things really well and it is also it's particular to him being or again part of the cleverness of these books is making him a texas ranger right and a texas ranger who's uncomfortable with his own with his own role with his own position because because um and this kind of overlaps with some of the things you were saying about the geography of these stories right that the texas ranger has got statewide privileges so it allows her to move the story really convincingly around around yeah, around, around the state right yeah, absolutely. I was. I just realized that I was nodding to everything you were saying, and that um, <laughs> nodding is not really a good reaction to a non-visual <laughs> medium. It, it also allows him to. Again, it's like she's so interested in the in the dynamics of of racial politics, and it gives him a really interesting position. He's he's you know he he can walk into, and she uses this extremely well in all kinds of different types of. Um, situations in across both novels that he can walk into a bar as a black man and he can pull out his badge and be a texas ranger and he sometimes makes decisions about how he presents himself and how he talks and how he the things he refers to his cultural reference points um change depending on who he's talking to whether he's you know he'll be talking about blues music with this person and he'll be playing you know I, you know, I'm an intellectual who went to the University of Chicago in this other sit- setting it, as, as a way of um, depicting and telling stories about the kinds of s- stories we tell ourselves about our own identities and, and about how we present our identity to other people in order to function in a, in a society are really, really interesting. Um, and she's, she's so, so good at that. You know, you said she talks well about writing. She's just, you can just tell in those interviews, um, and you can tell from reading the books, to be frank, that this is a really, like, this is a deep thinker. This is someone who's, so like my, th- th- there's lots of things in these novels that I don't think are, are that great. Um, they're not enough to make me not like the novels particularly, they're, but they're just things that irk me. They tend to be where she falls into leaning into the genre to do the genre things that the genre needs to do because they for me a lot of those things get in the way of that just really elegantly articulated deep thinking which happens again and again and again there's so many like i've already read out a couple of those passages that i think work that way but there's so many passages that are just short right to the point ways of of excavating themes or or motivation either kind of the stories or authorial motivation or or a particular character's motivation it works on kind of bigger schemes and, and smaller schemes that she's just so good at it and, and there's times where i just think well this story could be tighter and and more um complex if some of these other things didn't get in the way of it i want to come to an example of that in fact Okay, um, and you, you, you're, th- you're thinking particularly of the second one, though, aren't you? Of Heaven, My Home. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of both of them. I'm thinking of both of them. So here's just another example of um, here. Here she basically just lays all the themes down again. Daily he marvelled with befuddled anger at what a handful of scared white people could do to a nation. 
He never again wanted to hear them question the point of rioting in Ferguson or Baltimore, or Watts in Detroit for that matter, hear them wonder why black folks would torch their own neighborhoods because in an act of blind fury, white voters had just lit a match to the very country they claimed to love, simply because they were being asked to share it. And that's the bit that stung, the hurt that cut bone deep. After years of being lulled into believing that the universe bent toward justice, he saw how little friends and neighbors thought of his life, of his right to this country. And then she says, after Obama, it was forgiveness betrayed. And so like this, his personal kind of view on, you get some, some 20th century social history in there. You get his own thinking about it. You get her as the author slightly outside of that, mapping it to the bigger social political events of, of, the country which i really like i I like that sense of awareness there's other passages i could quote but i won't because i don't want to quote too much but there's so many places where you just see her doing something that i i think is super important for fiction in general um mapping the concerns of of a particular story to the concerns of the society in which that story sits like this i'm going to try and articulate something that's a little bit complicated i think I'm going to try and articulate it as, as straightforwardly as I can. Um, that like, it's it's very easy to think of novels as just made up things, or any any kind of fictional stories. So this is just a made up thing, and it doesn't really change the world. It doesn't really like, it doesn't really. It's not asking to do anything. It's just a kind of it's an escape or it's an entertainment or whatever, and. Um, what she's really hyper aware of in and makes part of the fabric of these novels in a way that like she's hyper aware of it but it's not self-consciously expressed in the novels it's integrated into the fabric of the novels and the way she tells the stories and the language she uses to tell the stories the kind of poetic turns uh, of language that she uses and some of the metaphorical language she uses and some of the imagery uh, that she gives the sense that a novel is a real thing and it's a real part of a real conversation so I can sit on my sofa at home reading bluebird bluebird and i can read heaven my home and i can enjoy them and i can you know tell my friend uh these are these are fun novels in fact i was told to read them by a friend of mine my friend peter uh said he reads lots of crime fiction he loves crime fiction this is partly my interest i guess in in asking these questions about genre and he said to me these novels are are just um they're so to me as someone who doesn't think of himself as a as a guy who reads literature these seem really literary to me and i want to know what you think because you teach literature and so i was like all right i read them and i I see what he's getting at um but she's really aware of these things as part of a conversation that is a political conversation that's a social conversation it's not just a literary conversation or not just a an escapist thing that you do at the end of your work day to unwind or what you do before bed because you can't sleep without kind of taking your mind somewhere else like this is like serious engaged like political i'm tempted to say action like it's political action these novels like they, they are serious engagements with the society that the author is living in and they're serious refractions I don't think reflections is quite the right word. Um, refractions of that society into uh, a form that allows people to think about them. And I think she's really, really good at that. I don't know if you want to say anything else about that, or should I just do a hard, 
like shift without putting the clutch pedal down and grind the entire transmission and talk about something that I don't particularly like about this novel. Well, no, before before we shift to that, no, I just I, I you know I want to I'm I'm doing I'm doing the nod now because I think no I think that's exactly right and I think you know I also want to say that you know for what it's worth you know what this guy thinks that that she also does the sorts of the sorts of gestures you're talking about she does them in such a way like you say they're so perfectly integrated into the fabric of the novel in in a way in a way that other writers would would find it hard not to make them just like clumsy expository lumps yeah you know like a kind of break almost a break in the narrative right she she does it so brilliantly and 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 does it on things that i think are actually really really difficult to do in the way that you've just described like early in the novel in which one? The, it, it, sorry in in heaven my home there's a is it okay if i read a short bit no um, i mean yeah go ahead <laughs> um, i'm the only no, guy it's it? my podcast and i read no go ahead <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier on the the, the two uncles, right? And and so yeah. again, a bit of, a bit of fleshing out here. Darren's two uncles are twins, and that's an important conceit because the one becomes a Texas Ranger, the other becomes a lawyer, then law professor, and these are the two men who raised him, and he feels pulled between the two, and he briefly goes to the University of Chicago to study law, and with the assumption being he'll. Um, go into you know become a become a lawyer even a a professor of law something like that but in the end the pull of the rangers wins and this is always this is one of the other tensions running throughout both the novels right so uh, that that's important because one of the uncles is mentioned in the bit that i'm about to read Um, he felt the disapproval of his late uncle william who'd been a texas ranger too a man darren revered for his integrity for the blind faith he held in the rule of law but darren wasn't sure anymore that the law could withstand blindness he'd protected mac character from the first novel he'd protected mac out of instinct because his own read of history told him a black man should have a right to his own fear otherwise he would he would forever be dying because of someone else's it's us or them isn't it the belief felt like a heavy brick in his chest, chipping away at the bones in his ribcage each time he took a breath, breaking him from the inside out. But did that make it any less true? Had anything in the weeks since the election proved his cynicism wrong? Maybe the rules had to be different. Maybe justice was no more a fixed concept than love was, and poets and bluesmen knew the rules better than we did. And and I'll stop there, but do you know what I mean? I just think it's another example of something that could be a really awkward expository lump and is done is handled really brilliantly. Yeah, and she so there's a couple reasons why she handles that stuff brilliantly. It's partly that she always locates these things in. So these novels are really they're they're told from Darren Matthews' point of view. They're they're third person. There's a a certain degree that you feel there's a there's some space between the voice of the author and the perspective of the main character. But it's, you're really you're you're either watching him closely. Or, yeah, you're it's kind his, of third or you're in close, his, isn't it? or you're in his thoughts. You're, you're often inside his thoughts, like you are there, basically, um, all the way through. It's I always think of it as like you know, in in some first-person shooter computer games, like there's the version where you're where you're holding the gun and you, you're looking down out the barrel of a gun, so you're kind of first-person. Or you can like if you're like me, and that that view always makes you feel a bit ill. Like, you know, like, especially back, like, in the 90s um, when, like, um, Doom and Quake first came out and they were, like, the movement really would just make me, like, literally physically nauseous. Anyway, um, <laughs> but you can also, like, you can set it so that you're just behind the character and you sort of see their head and their shoulders. And, like, this is, like, the head and shoulders um, view of the first-person shooter game um, in novel form that we get here. And so you're always kind of 
in you're watching him closely or you're inside of his thoughts at times and so she's always this is to come back to my main point here those what we what you're calling expository passages they're always embodied they're they're embodied in the in the in the mind of the character and more importantly in the actions of the character again we're back to plot so plot reveals character reveals the nature of a decision or i think it's character that reveals the nature of a decision but they're they're all they're all kind of tied up together for aristotle and um here you're getting that she's she's so careful about about embodying these expository things in 100% relevant to the story she's telling moments his the influence of his father figures his uncles it bears on him in real ways in the decisions he makes and how he goes about his professional life which is what we're watching in the in the novels and so they it it's organic to the character it's organic to the story that the character is involved in and that's why it works it doesn't work in uh when you read novels where where it's just like the author wants to read you an essay about what they think about you know racial politics about about the decisions of white people voting for trump as that passage i read out earlier is and you're like uh you know get off get off your soapbox i didn't i didn't come to a novel to read a, a political speech but when that political speech is embodied and, and also has bearing on what he says um before or after to this white supremacist guy has bearing on what he says to his his boss in order to get the things he wants has bearing on how he walks into a bar well, it has a bearing on the rest of the novel as well of right? white because it, because a, yeah. yeah because it's about yeah. it's about actually the sort of com- the conflict between the law and justice yeah it's it's totally and, and and she's so aware of that and so um it's some really supple thinking and and to me perhaps more importantly supple writing about that thinking the 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 way that the thinking gets embodied itself in the writing the way the the thoughts are embodied in the in the characters so it works on the kind of imaginative level of imagining characters and their stories it works on the expressive level of how you actually put the words together to make a sentence that expresses those things um I want to talk about like so there's here's a thing that that where that kind of thing goes wrong. Um uh, and uh this is a small thing. It's to some degree it's I suspect a pet peeve of mine, but I think it's an important one. It's one that I that I think about a lot both as a teacher and as a writer actually. Um so and she does this several times in this novel and so I'm look I'm thinking of having my home again. Um she does it less actually in in bluebird bluebird which i think is the stronger of the two novels but she so this just listen to this um something about gil thomas and out of the picture released the pain and anger and fear the kid had been holding in for who know how long so that something is like the exact opposite that word something is the exact opposite of everything i was just talking about it's a kind of dereliction of duty in a way i always think of it on the writer something about gil thompson out of the picture released the pain and anger anyone who's read the novel to this point knows what that something is and can articulate it and in fact darren matthews can articulate it in that moment and in fact attica lock can articulate it in that moment but she's written something about this and this and it's it makes me so angry <laughs> because it it genuinely makes me angry and it's not just lots of writers do this it's not just Attica Lock I'm not just picking on her and I hope like I I feel so self-conscious because I just really like these novels a lot but I also the shortcomings irked me all the more because of how much I liked the novels because of those moments of brilliance 
Yeah, and like whenever a writer says something, blah, 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 I think, no, your job as a writer is to tell me what that something is, to embody that something. And that something is that the guy is a bully and the, and the guy, the Gil Thomason, who's out of the picture, like beats up the kid's mom, beats up the kid, you know, is a, you know, has all these people hanging around who are obnoxious. The, the, Gil Thomason isn't the kid's dad. Like, there's, and, and there's, there's ways of articulating that and, and the effort is worth it because it's, there's a million places in both of these novels where, where she gives you the something. So the thing I always tell my students is like, your job as a writer is not to say something, it's to, to say what the something. something is, to name the something. And she so doesn't do, do it, you... and it makes me angry. <laughs> it makes me genuinely angry. I, I can tell. I'm getting angry just thinking about it all over again. Do, and it's, like, do, it's not just hers. I read this in all kinds of novels, and it yeah. makes me mad every time. Okay, but do, do you see that as a, as a failed gesture, right? As, as, as a failed attempt to make the reader, to make the reader do the work? Or do you see it as just bad slash lazy writing that hasn't been like, again, we're saying this in the context of a writer who we admire and two, two really good novels, particularly the first one. But do you see that as just a moment, a, a lapse? Yeah. Like I said, lazy or bad writing that hasn't been picked up or do you, or do you see yeah, it as, well, or do you see it as a deliberate gesture, get the reader to do some work here that doesn't quite for you, doesn't hit the mark? Well, I don't know. It's, I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a, it's not really. It, it turns into something of a sport or a game to to say, it's bad writing. It's lazy writing. It's a failed gesture. It doesn't really matter, and I'm not going to speculate. So it's a sport to sort of speculate on the, on the intention or the approach of the writer in this respect. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't really matter. Um, it's because it is bad writing as far as I'm concerned. Like it's it's a small it's a small moment of bad it's writing. Lapse, it's, not, yeah, yeah. it's not immoral or something. It's like yeah, the yeah, world yeah, isn't going to yeah. collapse because of it. But it just strikes me as a. It's a and I, I think I probably care more about it because I teach writing as well. But like, and so I, it's, it's, it strikes me as it's always a moment where, where the, the writing, and I, I think it's, it's less to do with the writer than it is the writing, though, you know, the writer is the one who makes the writing. But the ultimate effect of it is that the writing doesn't stretch in, to a place, to like a specific place where it can, where that, stretching and, and naming the something there opens up a world and allows me to reflect back okay. specifically. And you can pick an image that you've had earlier in the novel or an idea you've had earlier in the novel and you place it in there. And something just kind of like, I'll skate over it. You know, it's, it, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a song lyric. It's a, something that you can get away with in a song lyric something in the way she moves. You know, that's, you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm with you, George way. Harrison. Yeah. And but in a novel, like in prose fiction, I want I want the precision there. And again, this might just partly be my pet peeve. But I guess but, to me, it sounds like you're also saying this is a point in the novel where the the point of the something is not that it's mysterious. Actually, it's all perfectly articulable and and well known. So why so yeah. why make why make it a something so, if your yeah. whole point if your whole point were a gap, an unknown, yeah, a, a, a genuine something? Then fine. But, you, but so, yeah, if it's something, yeah, if it's something, and I've got to figure it out, then I know I'm going to figure it out. I'm back to like what I expect from reading, I suppose. Um, whereas here, it's like, yeah, we all know what something is, and like everyone who's read the book thus far could 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 say it. So find a way to say it that's, that's okay. sharp and clear and good. And like the the, the other thing, so I, I want to say a couple other things about like plot and so on and and convention, um, genre convention. And, yeah. then, and then maybe wrap it up and, and just say a few kind of final thoughts about the novels. 
Okay, so like, I want to come back to these things of, of conventions and, and things where that I just don't quite don't quite work for me. That that don't like all these all these things that we've been talking about are are about Attica Locke putting together a story with real pull and a real core of set of concerns and and ideas and themes that are being played out and then and then there's these other things that just don't seem to have anything to do with it to me that are about trying to so we're back to the like i don't care about plot or i i'm only interested in character and there's there seem to be moments where it's like oh i should be more interested in character i I have to make darren matthews a compelling character and so i better give him some depth and like so there's this whole there's two things and neither of this is giving anything away one is is his marriage is on the rocks in a kind of somewhat always slightly ill-defined way in a way that i think the, the wife um, isn't a very well-drawn character and kind of only seems to be there in order sometimes almost as like a plot device that doesn't need to be there or as like a way of giving him conflict that he that actually is all there and a lot of we've already talked about a lot of the conflicts yeah him. yeah and and it just seems kind of like well i don't know this what is this doing it just seems sort of conventional and um I'm trying to think of a, a way to put it, like just sort of middle of the road. Like it, it doesn't seem like anything I haven't read before. Like 90% of these novels is stuff I haven't read before in exactly these ways. And that's what I always want from a novel. I want to read about ideas that I've thought about in ways that I haven't thought about or or that are unique and whatever. And 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 the kind of detective who whose you know wife isn't happy about him being on the road. So it all just seems like oh. I've been here before. It's not really. It doesn't add anything important to me to the to the story that I'm reading. It doesn't make him more interesting as a character. If anything, it makes him slightly less interesting to me. Again, this might just be me. And then the other thing is is like he's always drinking, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of purpose to it. Like it, it sometimes like oh he's drunk too much. Or like there's a lot a, a lot of attention to him drinking bourbon in particular, and. And it just like I just feel like it's, it's happening because that's a thing that happens in detective novels, so it should happen. And and I don't get what any of it does. Like I, he can go into a bar without having a drink drinking problem. Like to, if he needs to go into a bar, like or you can go into a bar and have a beer. Like everybody does it. And it just I just that stuff just kind of felt like it was always the moment that like weirdly pulled me out of the story. Like I'm, I'm totally involved in this story, and my my like frontal lobe is is. is is grabbed by it and then and then i get yanked out because i have to like i have to wallow in his hangover or something and if i can just complete this before i hand it back to you like i i started thinking when i was reading these novels about again like one of my few touching points for for crime fiction that i've read a bunch of is is simonon in those magre novels you never know anything about magre like you know that magre has a wife who occasionally makes him a meal or like every night when he goes home and that's kind of all you ever know about his entire personal life is that is that he has a wife who loves him and like and that's it you don't know anything about this guy you just watch him solving crimes and maybe this is something of like what i want from a story and it's not fair to the writer to like to map those to map those onto, onto yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, they don't work for me. And I, it seems worth saying. They don't make me as mad as the something. I know my, my tone has sort of risen up to fever pitch now. But like, Yeah, you sound, you, you sound less mad about the something, but yeah. I know that means you're more mad about the something. Uh, yeah, I was, um, it was my quiet, yeah. steely determinism, determination. So, I mean, 
Uh, so where do we start? I mean, we're, we're sort of talking about genre conventions again. I know I need to keep this brief. Um, but I think the, the crummy marriage, I, I, I think I know what you mean by that, because it, but I mean, we're, we're, we're two books deep into what looks like it could be a relatively long running series. Right. So so that that could turn into something. Sorry to use that word, Doug, um, but, but, <laughs> but it could amount it could but it could amount to something. Right. Or, or it yeah. might go nowhere. Similarly, the struggle with drinking with the drinking problem. Um, there's there's a million different ways that you could choose to to signal to a reader Oh, this is a person who's in his constantly in his internal, constantly going through his own inner dialectic, right? And actually, there's one of the things you could say about these novels is that for for a series that's that's only yeah that we're only two books into at the moment, he's been pulled in almost too many directions, and and sometimes doesn't need to be pulled in so many directions because actually, the relationship with the memory of the one uncle. The, the the other uncle who's still living and his mother and we there isn't time to talk about her but she's a really interesting character that does an awful lot of work that plus his you know his, his difficulties with his job and his 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 political professional role that does an awful lot of work so so yeah so i see what you're saying with that i think i do anyway but let's see if it leads anywhere the the bourbon yeah i mean bourbon is a stock is a, it's a prop isn't it in a in a lot of crime a delicious fiction. prop a delicious prop but but a prop nonetheless the, the interesting thing so you've mentioned Maigret a couple of times now and the interesting thing there is that in many ways we're talking about again two different traditions of crime writing though, yeah right? sure sure so in some ways the comparison only will only stretch so far anyhow because there is a very very different tradition of American crime writing yeah, that this so, taps all, into yeah but all I really meant by that was was like there's a character who you don't need to know anything about to be totally gra- like the story like Simonon seems to know that the story is the thing that's interesting, and and like the yeah. guy is a kind of he needs to be a, he, there needs to be something there, and there's something there in in Darren Matthews. He doesn't need to be everything. We don't need to know everything, but like we're um, kind of reaching the end of our conversation. I wanted to just there's like four or five other things that are great in these novels that I haven't even gotten around to, but as a way of just kind of sending our listeners out into the world to to think about reading these books or to think more about them if they've already read them, I I just want to come back to this idea of contemporary racial politics in America and then also the kind of racial history of America and there's something I think one of the wonderful things that that these novels do or wonderful is probably not the right word because it's it's pretty intense and hard is that Attica Locke has really taken um, a story and a character one character in particular but the the kind of all the other characters that orbit around this protagonist and a place east texas and ingrained that story with the history and in particular the racial history of the united states from like like the, the ways in which and one of the things that's really great in heaven my home in particular is the way the racial politics and the white supremacy and and everything that that is all on the surface and, and also then reaches down into the depths of of the thematic um, workings of Bluebird. Bluebird move into their um, historical roots, their very deep and long historical roots in slavery and in the aftermath of slavery and the aftermath of the Civil War and how what the, some of the lo- generation after generation after generation effects of those things are and 
and she's found very particular and at times peculiar, and I don't mean that in a in a negative way at all, far from it. No, it's part um, of the, very, the, the, the brilliance of these. The, the peculiarities in which those things express themselves in these novels, I, I think, are just fantastic and really make these novels super worth reading. I mean, really, really interesting to me. I've, I've thought about both of them quite a lot since since I read them. Well, I think to kind of bring things full circle, you know, we, we started off this conversation talking about genre conventions. And one of the things that the, the, the hard-boiled tradition, the sort of noir tradition of American crime writing does is, you know, in, in, in many ways, it's, it is a kind of literature of place, right? often, a, often an urban literature. Um, and 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 this that's not quite what these books are, but what it what 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 they are are books about, as you say, they're kind of they are mapping in really really skillful ways, really broad cultural histories, and and doing it in a really economical way. Um, she was invited recently, um, Attica Locke, to to speak about her work, but in relation to the theme of of decolonization. And she said at the beginning of this lecture that, that it wasn't really a way. She hadn't thought of her work in those terms before, but the more she thought about it, the more she said that you know my my writing is is, is actually it's about it's about land, you know, it's about land and territory, and she writes about that. You know, you, one of the extracts you read had to do with whether or not people are willing to share a land that has plenty of space and plenty of resources in one way or another. She also writes in re- in really deft ways in um, in Heaven My Home about the expropriation of land from indigenous peoples, and I think she does that. Yeah, really quite brilliantly. Yeah, I totally agree. We're posting this podcast as part of uh, a way of uh, touching on, on African-American History Month. And I, I mean, these are steeped in African-American history, which is steeped in the history of white people in America in ways that are both obvious and less obvious. And, and again, as a, as a subtle, supple, and deep way of thinking about those things um, through story. I think these novels are really fantastic, really, really fantastic. Ollie, thank you so much for joining me on the Novel Romantics podcast. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. And I hope you'll join me again every month uh, for a new novel, a new topic, a new guest, but always keeping to contemporary American literature. Um, Thanks, Ollie. Thanks for having me, Doug. You're very welcome. Thank you.